Never one to be quick on the uptake, I was recently introduced to the idea of bare minimum Mondays. And it's the concept that Sundays are unnecessarily stressful as you think about all you have to do uh, on a Monday and your workload. And that actually we should be going into the Monday doing the bare minimum, just keeping our jobs ticking over and ease ourselves into the week. Videos on the idea have had millions of views online, but who knows whether it will actually catch on. And perhaps more interestingly, who knows what bosses think of it. But I think it speaks to the idea that all our assumptions about uh, the world of work have been upended. We're in this period of huge transformational change, and we don't really know where we're heading to. You're listening to the ITN Business Extra podcast on the future of work. I'm Duncan Golastani, and to delve into some of those topics, we have a fantastic panel. Joining me here in the podcast studio is Anna Thomas, co-founder and director at the Institute for the Future of Work. And joining us remotely, Julian Birkenshaw, Vice Dean and Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at London Business School, and Nick Hederman, Senior Director, Modern Work, Microsoft UK. Welcome to you all. Anna, I'm going to come to you first of all. What would you say if someone told you that they were going to do a bare minimum Monday? Well, none of us work on Mondays in the office at the Institute for the Future of Work. Um, so, um, and since um, I'm director of it, uh, <laughs> we'd, I think, be fine. But I think the um, way in which this issue has um, been highlighted and your question um, points to the need um, to shift all our attention more towards um, human beings, their capabilities, their needs, their con their concerns, um, and to involve them in really important decisions. Yeah. Uh, Nick, can I bring you in? If, mm. if one of your uh, employees said, this is how I'm going to start my week, what would you say back to them? Well, they're empowered to work flexibly and I'll be fully supportive, but perhaps I can give you some some stats for, <laughs> in terms of what we're seeing globally. And what we're seeing is 46% of the meetings happening in a week are actually taking place on Monday and Tuesday. So actually there's a, a lot of intensity in those first two days of the week. Then it starts to tail off. And in fact, Fridays are the days where we see significantly less meetings than we would have saw, seen uh, before the pandemic. So perhaps you could argue the Friday is, is equally as important as the Monday concept in the way you described it. Okay, so it's it's ease off Friday, perhaps. Let's dive in then to our first proper topic, um, and that is AI. Um, I like to think that actually, if I had put uh, these uh, this podcast into ChatGPT or another tool, that it wouldn't have come up with such a welcoming, whimsical uh, question uh, as what do you think of bare minimum Mondays? But actually, I'm assured by my producers that they actually did put this podcast into a tool and it came up with 10 pretty decent questions. Um, mm. I like to think they didn't have the flair that I bring to it, but they said, actually, it was it was pretty good. Therefore, the topic that always comes up when you talk about AI, how fearful should we be uh, about our jobs Julian. So there are techno optimists and the techno sort of um, negatives. I'm very much on the optimistic side. In other words, 
we know through history, uh, through two or three hundred years of industrial kind of uh, improvements, that every time new technologies come along, the first thing people worry about is what's it going to do to their jobs. And then fairly quickly, it becomes clear that, in fact, what it's done is it's it's actually created new job categories. And then, you know, one the one famous example that comes to mind is you know, when when we first invented Excel type spreadsheets, you know, the number of people who were, you know, coding information into spreadsheets and into things do- drops dramatically. But then the number of people who were analyzing and making sense of that data grew. So I am always of the view that technology should be harnessed and uh, used in ways that create new opportunities. There will, over the medium to long term, be productivity benefits from these things. There will often be a short term displacement of jobs. I mean, it is absolutely true that 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 over the next few years, several job categories will be reducing. And there are challenges in how you deal with that, that gap. But in the medium to long term, technology is going to support uh, further productivity and societal improvements. Okay, new opportunities. But Anna, we do have to acknowledge there are fears out there and they are justified. Um, There are fears, which isn't surprising, given with ChatGPT, we're in the middle of a giant experiment and we're all seeing and we're all experiencing um, the ways in which it can make some bits of our job better and easier. We are, you know, and we, we, we can use it for to structure things, um, to uh, suggest questions, um, to research things, although often very badly, the source mm-hmm. material is, is, is wrong. But it doesn't have to be like that. Um, and ideally, more than ideally, really what we should have done is think harder and together um, uh, in, a, in a more inclusive way uh, structured way about what the impacts were going to be on work before it was released um, for use by the general public. Nick? Well, I think the way you described the intro there, uh, Duncan, around um, the outcome of those 10 responses were good. That's the key point here. You know, so many people spend time staring at a blank sheet of paper trying to get started. Right. What about having some support to get you to a good starting place within seconds so that you can spend your time working on making it outstanding, putting your creativity, injecting the unique perspective that you have. And the data is really clear on this. You know, we just we run a, a, a global survey um, that goes around the world asking 30,000 people how they feel about work. And some of the some of the stats are quite scary. You know, 62% of people spend say they spend way too much time just simply searching for the information they need to do their jobs. Ineffective meetings are the number one productivity disruptor. 64% of employees don't have enough time or even energy to do their job well. And 60, 60% of leaders that we are say that they, they feel like innovation is lacking right now because of all those previous factors. So why not free people up from all that mundane work, the drudgery of work and allow them to focus on the fun stuff. And so I think that's the opportunity. So maybe Monday mornings will be much better actually, uh, if we had the tools to, to dive in and do what we needed to do and to to untap our creativity. Um, Julian, you talked about new opportunities uh, and short-term or medium-term displacements. I wonder what's the societal impact of this? Because I'm guessing that in the first instance, it's going to be the the jobs that are more highly repetitive, uh, that are perhaps more clerical, administrative in nature, more manual um, in nature. Uh, Given the income inequalities that we have uh, at the moment, 
is there is there a danger of that gulf widening as we adopt yeah. more and more AI yeah. tools? Yes. Yeah, so what's now happening, thanks to AI, is we're seeing the automation of what you might call uh, office-based work. And you are absolutely right that if you look at the types of jobs which are most at risk, it is not the managerial class or the you know the the creatives. It is the people doing a lot of the rather more menial office-based work. Um, interestingly, a lot of, for example, social work in hospitals or whatever, um, nurses are not under threat at all. So it's not like all of the lower paid professions are at risk, but many office-based ones are. You ask sort of what are the implications of that? The implication is that in many, many offices, all of the large companies I can think of, their need for people in those lower parts of the, of the salary structure is going to be going down. The disruption is not huge because it's not going to like fall off a cliff, but we are going to have to be retooling people. We are going to have to invest much more in educating people in the in the skills that they are going to be needing more of in the future. And, and we've talked about what some of them are. Some of them are relational skills. Some of them are more creative skills, the things that the computers still cannot do. So that's where I roughly see it's going. This is not Armageddon, but it is absolutely a, a five to 10 year period of adjustment in these larger companies. Anna, that retooling that Julian is is talking about, do you look towards government to do that as well as businesses? Um, yeah, you are. We are going to need um, governance, more governance, and overarching framework. Um, the AI uh, white paper did articulate five principles, which are fantastic. But it's now about implementing them in practice, um, without only relying on self-regulation, because we can see, and JetGP is one of the examples that that uh, that something was needed at an earlier stage. Um, the answer is, I think, to have a principles-based framework, and we're moving towards that in the UK, um, and to embed some requirements, for example here, the preemptive evaluation of mm. impacts on work and people, um, but not specify how that's done, what the method should be, and the metrics, which can be done by individual firms um, and regulators and, uh, and uh, expert bodies working those up over time. Yeah. Uh, Nick, anything more you wanted to add on? Yeah, I, AI I think I just uh, um, elaborate on the point that there is absolutely a requirement for new AI aptitude amongst anyone using the tools. You know, analytical judgment, emotional intelligence, mm. uh, evaluating the source of data, looking at biases, even just learning how to write a good prompt. You know, we call it sort mm. of prompt engineering. You know, how are you going to get the best out of this technology? And it's very simple. What you put in, the more you put in, the quality, the insight, the, the the ideation into the prompt, you'll get a better response. And so, these are new skills that you know largely don't exist today, and and they're going to have to be have to be uh, uh, developed within within the workforce. And to Anna's point, that's partly you know government will need to help here, but equally private sector and, and organisations themselves will need to invest. Workforce mm -hmm. and and schools and universities, I suppose. Quite, quite, yeah. At London Business School, of course. Our students, like students around the world, are using ChatGPT, and and you know we could have said we're going to ban it, but of course that's not that's not the way forward. So we said we encourage you to use ChatGPT in your assignments, um, and we need you to acknowledge that you're doing it, reference it like a source, and that puts the onus back on us to make, as it were, smarter assignments. If you see what I mean, you know, a good assignment 
a good answer to an assignment is the one that proves that you are a human, proves that you are going above and beyond what ChatGPT could give you. And, and that's part of the learning and development that we expect all of our students to, to go through. So embrace the opportunities seems to be uh, the theme. If I think back to January 2020, um, I know that I had Teams on my desktop computer, um, mm. but I wasn't quite sure what it was for and how to use it. Um, I'd vaguely heard of a Hangout. Um, I'd not heard of a Zoom. And mostly FaceTime was for my mum and for friends uh, around the world. I mean, uh, that makes me feel like a complete Luddite, but but surely uh, I can't be alone. Uh, I, I suspect I know the answer, but perhaps I should go to Nick because uh, from your perch at your company, uh, you have a particular vantage point on this. Yeah, I mean, look, the, 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 the pace at which people leverage the tools and the digital capabilities to continue to work and be as productive, if not more productive, than before the pandemic was just simply incredible. You know, we saw organisations rolling out teams in a matter of days that probably would have taken them years uh, if it hadn't been for the pandemic. So, um, yeah, it was just truly amazing to see. I mean, obviously, circumstances were terrible, but in terms of the um, the biggest experiment into remote work, it has proved many things. Uh, and probably the most interesting one is that people can be productive in a flexible and hybrid environment or a remote environment. They don't need to be in a physical location to generate great outputs. No. Nick, is that literal days? In some cases, yeah. Um, I mean, take the NHS, for example. In two days, they rolled out to over a million users. I mean, that's just that's incredible. incredible. I mean, and what that... was, was also really reassuring to see is because the technology is familiar to many people in the sense of IMing each other, having a digital meeting, like you say, Duncan, you know, these things have existed in, in people's personal lives for longer. Actually, the speed and the adoption of the technology was quick. You know, there was there's, yes, there was sort there was help in terms of how to really maximise the capability um, that we provided. But in terms of just the basic things, getting set up, sending each other messages, sharing documents, having having online meetings, then 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 there was very little barrier to making that happen. So necessity was just a huge accelerator. Julian, what are the challenges then around hybrid working? One is that some aspects of work just don't work that well virtually um and 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 indeed the most difficult is the meetings where you've got half the people in the room and half the people uh, are on zoom or teams um where you can't quite figure out which model you're working with so you know then and then there's obviously the the social dynamics point in other words um yes hybrid working means i'm in the office some days but not others but that does create problems you've got the a little bit of us and them in terms of the ones who are not in the office are not seeing the the new opportunities. They're not having the corridor conversations. They are not having the uh, those impromptu meetings which might allow them to develop themselves. And so, so even though they have been told they're allowed to work remotely, uh, sometimes it is actually handicapping them in their personal growth and development. And, and of course, that only plays out over many years. We are still absolutely in the foothills of this journey in terms of what does the hybrid workplace of the future look like? 
it'll be very interesting to see in the future what impact it has uh, for working parents. You know, um, mm. the idea that actually making jobs more flexible and having hybrid working, uh, whether it makes workplaces more equitable mm. um, for parents who are working and sharing childcare. There are huge potential advantages, and we are seeing those um, already. Um, but um, but equally, there's uh, there are concerns about different types of intensification um, or different kinds of uh, demographics and groups. Young you know young uh, people, new starters, mm. people coming back to work after career breaks, where it's harder. So it really all depends about how you do it, um, um, and uh, it's super important um, to consult and involve. Um, the workforce um, to make sure that the benefits are maximised and the risks minimised. Is anyone detecting tensions between uh, employees and workplaces? I'm thinking recently some very big name companies have started uh, mandating for in-office uh, days. So does anyone want to speak to uh, yeah that tension yeah, I mean, I, I can take this one, Duncan. We, we, in our survey, we asked people how productive they were feeling. 86, 87% of people said they were feeling as productive, if not more productive than before the pandemic. And yet only 12% of leaders had confidence and trust in their teams. Mm. Um, oh, and I think what that shows is, 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 a, is a paranoia, a chasm between uh, the different cohorts within an organisation. Uh, and quite honestly, I can empathise with leaders if they're walking into an office and no one's there. And they don't have the insights, they don't have the data to really understand what's happening within their organisation because now everything's happening in a digital form. Uh, if they're not tracking that, if they're not able to understand what's going on uh, from a trend point of view, then actually it, 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 you, know, you can start to jump to conclusions. And so I think there is a need for, uh, for leaders to recognise that they need to create this new digital fabric this new way of engaging, which is partly in person, but also partly in, 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 in a digital form and feel comfortable with leading in that environment as well. And, and, and having data and, ex and being able to run experiments is obviously critical to that. Yeah, one, one additional point. I mean, I agree with what, what Nick said there, but I was looking at um, data from ONS, the Office for National Statistics, and there's an important distinction by, by salary levels, which is entirely predictable, but they were looking at I think people earning £50,000 a year or more, 80% were either doing home working or hybrid working. Uh, and those earning less than £20,000, it was about 24% were doing home working or hybrid working. Wow. So that's another manifestation, if you like, of this tension between those, you know, those privileged few at the top who, who get that choice and, and many others who do not. Does anybody think we're we're slightly fixated on days? I know this is a conversation that we have with colleagues. What days are you working? How many days do you have to go in? You know, what companies are saying how many days you have to go in and when and the whole Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday thing and an acronym I won't say on our podcast. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, do you think a fixation on days, is that part of an old style of thinking? Should we not be thinking about productivity and outcomes and quality? You're wincing, Julian. I see you wincing. Yeah, I mean, gosh, uh... I, I mean, look, I completely buy the argument we should be focusing on productivity. You know, what should matter is what you achieve, not what days you do. Um, I have no confidence that we can we can actually measure that in a way that would satisfy us. And therefore, moving towards a model where we, in, in LBS, on a business school, we talk about anchor days. You know, which are your anchor days, the days when you have to be in the office? And that's typically where we are. It's Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'm afraid that's the necessary shorthand to actually get the message across in a way that everybody um, understands. Because without that, 
you do get this game playing of somebody, you know, claiming that they're being as productive as somebody else, but but actually not not showing up in the workplace. So that's that's the risk. That um, so that's why I was wincing. <laughs> and, uh, and as a, as a technologist, you may not be surprised for me to say this, but we think there's a role for technology here. You know, oh, there are some yeah. some basic thing leaders can do, like having anchor days or even going as far as mandating, which we've all seen generally backfire. I'd say, mm-hmm. um, but knowing who you typically interact with in your digital environment and then giving you that insight uh, as to how you should plan your week is really helpful so let's say for example next tuesday i'm going to work from home but yet the um my my, my technology tells me that 72 percent of the people i typically interact with are going to be in the office that day mm. i'm probably going to change my choice mm. i'm going to say okay that's the day i'm going to go in because they're going to be the people i want to connect with so there's some element of automation and, and predictability we think technology can play a role in in here to helping people make decisions about when they work from home and when they when they come together and actually nick you're offering sort of technological help aren't you to businesses mm. that is something that you've been working on haven't you over the last year yeah, I mean that's that's one of the technologies I just described there. It's it's a product in in beta right now called Microsoft Places. It's going to help essentially with 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 many aspects of of getting people together because we all know that's absolutely critical. Um, but our technology stack um, reaches uh, way beyond that in terms of helping to create that sort of digital employee experience, uh, and that's the new thing right now. Like you've got to if if you're thinking about leading in this new flexible area of work, that that digital employee experience is so critical. Anna, as a leader, what's your strategy? Strategy may be pitching it a bit hard. <laughs> um, we need a lot more research in this area, although there were some really good pilots. We've got the results of those now on a four-day week. Um, I, we would suggest sort of moving downstream of that. So, yes, so we in, in, and thinking about productivity perhaps slightly more widely, um, the, uh, there are certainly uh, quite, you know, quite strong economic, health, social cases for both um, improving quality of work and improving people's involvement in work um, and their choice about how they work. And that might lead in a, in a, in a firm or a group of people to uh, reducing hours, but not necessarily. Um, and it's hard to insist on that or legislate for that. Um, just um, looping back to Nick's point about use of data, mm. um, it can, well used and with consent, be really helpful as part of this wider decision-making process. But we have also got to be um, a little bit careful about gathering and use of data um, at work, the data protection and digital information bill is going through Parliament, and there's been some really interesting debates this week, um, which highlight the importance of consent and involvement as in high-risk environments, including work. Um, so it's very important that we, I think, um, extend the conversation about uh, the potential for data to improve productivity for companies, um, to uh, to how uh, how how individuals can perhaps cr- control and use their data mm. um, in a way that they decide um, is helpful for uh, their productivity um, or um, improving aspects of their work or job. The regulatory framework that we have is it is it flexible enough, agile enough to keep up with the speed of change of what we're seeing? 
Um, well, in work, um, the, uh, the the re- regulation is very piecemeal. It's mm. patchwork. So we've got data protection. We've also got employment laws. Um, we've got equality laws, occupational health safety laws. But it's quite hard. Um, and our analysis does suggest there are gaps in coverage um, in the workplace. The bill going through Parliament is an opportunity to correct that in some areas, but not but not all of it. But overall, um, I do think we should be doing more to um, improve clarity for businesses and individuals and the baseline of protection um, mm-hmm. in this area of digitization at, at work. Mm-hmm. We're a cross-party uh, charitable institute, um, but we've worked um, in this bill uh, with um, the opposition to develop digital principles at work, um, which are a fantastic milestone, we think, um, to getting people thinking about the right things in this space and set out a potential framework um, for the development of regulation uh, in due course. Okay. I, I just want to touch on uh, the generational issues. There are very different attitudes, aren't there, Julian, between the different generations generations when it comes to the world of work and it's evolving uh, quite quickly. Yes, so I mean my my kids are kind of early 20s and they don't see any particular no need to ever go into the workplace because they've learned to live their lives you know through their computer and and of course yet they're the ones who actually really need need that sort of social contact at work the most uh, and I'm at the other end of the spectrum where I'm delight in my home office because <laughs> I've got the comforts of it, if you see what I mean. So um, so I don't know how we resolve that. I mean, it is absolutely true that 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 we, whenever we design any policies around this stuff, we've got to be very clear that the motivations and the opportunities vary at various different stages of our, our lives and that we mustn't create these one-size-fits-all solutions. Yeah. Nick, younger colleagues? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our data is very clear. 80% of Gen Z say they want to be in person for all the things that Julian just said, that osmosis of data, of learning the serendipitous conversation, uh, and ultimately humans want to be together. Uh, That's equally true amongst the older generations. It dips, um, you know, it's as high as 80% in Generation Z. It it dips down to 60% in in the boomer generation. Um, But still there's a desire for humans to want to be together. Uh, And you can understand the reasons why the older generations might want to spend more time at home, more develop network, more experience, a better home setup often is the case. Mm. Uh, and you don't always know what the outcome will be from being together because there's a huge element of serendipity that comes from just getting 20 or 30 people in a team together in a room or an office location. Uh, and so you kind of have to go into that selfless act with, with, a, with a positive sense of hope that, you know, something magical will, will occur. And more often than not, it does. You just can't predict it. So, Nick, let me just clarify that. The selfless act is is going into the office. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm more than capable of doing my job at home, but I'm going to make a selfless act to be in that location to help the broader team, especially those newer to the organisation or younger in their career. Um, And there's something beautiful that will come from that moment of being together. And let's move on to quality of work while we're talking uh, about younger people. Uh, The gig economy is growing in the UK, uh, but as a country, shouldn't we be striving for good work, uh, the quality of work? Uh, What's your perspective on that? Um, Yes, I think... um Really, um, focusing on good work should be a sort of cross-cutting policy and organisational objective. 
um, which solves a lot of problems and aligns a lot of different perspectives um, and also tends to result in better outcomes. Our work on the, in the Amazonian era um, suggested that gig trends, so trends that we associate with the gig economy, mm. um, ethoses, practices, models for work and tools, um, are now spreading across the economy, um, which again provides a basis for mm. thinking more sharply about impacts to work quality. Uh, how important are company credentials uh, for the younger generation, do you think? Is it is it all about pay and hours? No, no, it's certainly not. In fact, we're seeing, um, to Anna's point, mission and purpose is often the number one reason people apply to an organisation. Uh, flexibility is is very high as well, um, and and equally learning and development. In fact, pay comes typically about fifth in the in the data we see oh. now, whereas before it would have been much higher. Uh, and so, um, you know, if, if a company doesn't think it's important to have a really clear mission statement and a sense of why they belong on this planet and, and a culture that, that really encourages people to, to thrive and to learn and to grow, then they're missing a trick. You know, they will ultimately losing, they'll be losing great talent to, to their competitors. Yeah. Julian, that word yeah. culture, something that, you know, you wouldn't have dreamt of talking about 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, so if, if, if you ask my students, um, and they're typically in their early early to late 20s, some early 30s, I mean, what, what sort of companies do they want to work for? As Nick says, the most important thing is a feeling that the company that they're going to work for is actually doing something worthwhile for society. And then some of the more mature ones, they, they look under the hood and they actually say, is this a company whose culture, whose values are things that I support. Uh, I can't say that they all do that, but certainly the ones who've had a couple of jobs already and have seen what the workplace can look like for better or for worse, they will look much more closely at that stuff. I mean, the, the one, you know, inescapable trend is that they're going to move from company to company. The, the job for life is gone. And that really is is true. Yeah, well and truly gone. Finally, uh, I'm going to ask you all, what do we need to be doing now to future-proof our jobs. Uh, so I'll go around you, Anna. Um, I may start with a, a subjective uh, response. Um, my daughter's doing GCSEs at the moment and there's uh, too much rote learning and we need uh, to embed what we've been talking about on this programme, sort of creativity, yeah. uh, communication, critical thinking um, into the curriculum uh, at, a much, um, at a much earlier stage. Um, we need, um, looping back to perhaps the last point made, there is, as you say, a lot of job churn. There's going to be more job churn um, and we need to be thinking about how we can encourage um, and support um, you know, individuals uh, move through different uh, job cycles, life cycles um, and uh, change between sectors mm. um, in a, uh, more, than, more than we do at the moment in a way that will ultimately fulfil their capabilities. Nick? What would you do to future-proof your job? I'd say three three things. Um, that the, the, the 2019 School of Leadership won't cut it today. Embrace flexibility. Build that digital fabric to connect your organisation together uh, and lead through it. Uh, secondly, we have a skills shortage and a massive deficit of people uh, available to build digital applications and processes. We think about 4 million 
people will, will be needed more than we have today to, to automate and, and to essentially become citizen developers. So there's a huge opportunity for people to retrain and move towards that, that opportunity. And finally, we talked about it earlier, this, this AI aptitude, you know, this teaching this new skill set to, to be critical, uh, to be curious, intellectually curious, uh, to, to identify biases and learn how to get the best out of the technology. Again, these are all really critical new skills that have got to be taught very soon, actually, now. Yes, now. We've been curious, haven't we? Uh, Julian, lastly. Yes, two quick observations from the point of view of what should company leaders be doing. Um, one is, and we've touched on this, but you know, it is in your power to kind of make work more interesting. In other words, you know, the basics of designing jobs which have sufficiently you know, interesting angles to them to make them worth, worth doing. That is in the power of leaders, and some companies do a much better job of that than others. And then the second point is, we've only just touched on this, but you know, with workforce going into the 60s and 70s, um, 70-year-olds, we've got to think much more creatively about how, how work gets redefined for people who are in the latter stages of their career. And I don't think I've seen anybody come up with a solution to that. Yeah, again, it's it's sort of looking at that arc of your your working exactly. life, isn't it? And we think it the, the the line on the graph looks a very particular way, mm-hmm. and actually, you know, does it need to look like that mm-hmm. in order to have people working into their sixties and seventies? Um, it's been fascinating getting insights from all of you. Thank you so much uh, all for your time. Um, I'm glad that the theme, the vibe, if you like, is one of optimism. Julian Birkenshaw, Nick Hedman, and here with me in the studio, Anna Thomas. Thank you all very much for your time. You've been listening to the ITN Business Extra podcast on the future of work. Thank you.